0: Good evening and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick and we have a busy show for you tonight with three guests instead of our usual two, so let's get started. First up will be Cheska Colorado Mansfield, the executive director and co-founder of Miracle Feet they address a congenital birth defect clubfoot, which left untreated, as it often is in the developing world, can have devastating consequences.
1: As a result, kids in low-income countries born with a condition who can't access treatment grow up unable to walk properly, um, which has incredible stigma associated with it in low-income countries. Often these children are excluded from going to school, joining in with family life, village life, community life. Um, And so they're, they're Future tends to be a downward spiral in terms of opportunity uh, to participate fully in life.
0: Then you will hear from Adele Douglas, founder and CEO of Humane Farm Animal Care. Their mission is this.
2: We're a nonprofit certification organization dedicated to improving the lives of farm animals in food production from birth through slaughter. The goal of the program is to improve the lives of farm animals by driving consumer demand for kinder and more responsible farm animal practices.
0: And finally, I'll be joined by Helen Lohman, president and CEO of Keep America Beautiful. This is a group that got Americans for the very first time to be mindful of littering and did so with one of the most famous public service announcements ever made.
3: It shows um, a Native American who's uh, witnessing litter essentially all over um, the country. And at the very end of the spot, it shows him standing on a hill and um, somebody in a car throws a bag of litter or trash out the window Mm -hmm. and it lands at his feet and a single tear rolls down his face.
0: But before all of that, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, July 28th. Just 24% of Americans said disaster relief charities were very clear in explaining what they do with the donations they receive, according to a study. The proportion of individuals who claim charitable deductions on their taxes fell to 8.5% in 2018. That compares with 24% the previous year. Fundraising salaries grew by 8% last year. The median fundraiser salary is now $72,500. 93% of donors to women's and girls' causes are female, and 12% are LGBTQ, according to a study by the Women's Philanthropy Institute. Foundation giving in the United States is highly concentrated in a handful of states and cities, with nearly half of all grant dollars going to recipient organizations in New York, California, and Washington, D.C. Disrupted sleep in one's 50s and 60s raises the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And finally, The Knight Foundation will commit almost $50 million to help the public better understand how technology is changing the political landscape ahead of the 2020 presidential elections. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Cheska Colorado-Mansfield of Miracle Feet right after this.
4: Tiana was homeless and looking for a change when she found Year Up. Like many in her community, she was smart and talented, but didn't have the same opportunities as others. At Year Up, she gained valuable skills and experience entering the healthcare IT field upon graduation. Year Up is a transformative opportunity for motivated young adults and companies looking for talent. 85% of alumni are employed or in school within four months of graduation. Support young adults like Tiana. Visit yearup.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the Business of Giving, you can find them at Denver Frederick. And now back to the show on AM 970 The Answer.
5: There
0: are disabilities that children are born with, which are treated at birth in a fairly routine manner in the developed world. But in low income nations, many of these disabilities are left untreated with devastating consequences for both the individual and their family. Cleft palate would be one. Another, is Clubfoot, which we'll be talking about tonight. And we'll do that with Cheska Colorado-Mansfield, the executive director and co-founder of Miracle Feet. Good evening, Cheska, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
1: Thank you so much, Denver.
0: Start by telling us what is Clubfoot and what causes it.
1: Yeah. so clubfoot is another congenital birth defect. It affects one in every 800 children born worldwide. So the incidence rate is actually the same here in the U.S. or in Europe as it is in developing uh, countries. Um, The difference is that in developing countries, um, it is left untreated, while here in the U.S. it's routinely treated at birth. The, the, what club foot uh, causes for the child is that is the feet are turned inwards and upwards it can affect one or both feet um, and if left without treatment it makes makes it very difficult and painful to walk properly as a result kids in low-income countries born with a condition who can't access treatment grow up unable to walk properly um, which has incredible, stigma associated with it in low-income countries. Often these children are excluded from going to school, joining in with family life, village life, community life. Um, and so their, their future tends to be a downward spiral in terms of opportunity uh, to participate fully in life.
0: Uh, Jessica, what are some of the primary barriers to treatment?
1: So... Uh, Two main barriers would be um, lack of understanding that the, this condition is treatable. So a child born in a low-income country, the parents may have no idea that this is actually something that can be treated relatively easily and completely and so they don't seek access to treatment and that lack of knowledge extends into the healthcare system where they may go to their local community health center or may ask the midwife, you know, what what's wrong with my child's feet, they don't look quite right mm-hmm. and they, those people may not even know that it's treatable. So they don't get good advice about seeking treatment when the child is first born. So that's one barrier. The second barrier is just a lack of understanding of how to treat clubfoot in low and middle income countries. Um, In the U.S., the gold standard treatment um, is something called the Ponseti method. It's a non-surgical treatment. It has wonderful results when done correctly. Um, But unfortunately, there are not many providers, healthcare providers in low-income countries that understand the method and have been trained properly in it and have all of the equipment and the ability to routinely provide that treatment. So it's both the knowledge and kind of the, the clinical capacity that are barriers um, initially. And then there are things like distance from the clinic. Yeah. You know, these a lot of people live a long way away. It's hard for them to get there. You have to come back for multiple appointments. And so for a family with both parents working or with limited resources, that can also be a barrier.
0: Well, Enter, Miracle Feet, tell us about your organization and what was the inspiration for you to start it?
1: So I founded Miracle Feet with some other parents who had children born with Clubfoot here in the US. Mm-hmm. They their children were lucky enough to be treated um with the Ponseti method and when they learned that children in low income countries did not have access to treatment they were horrified that something that seemed so simple to treat and had such extraordinary results um, was not available worldwide um, so together we connected um, about nine years ago My insp- to found the organization my inspiration was that I had been I been brought up in Africa and I had always wanted to do something to make life better for kids in, in low and middle income countries having seen the difference in opportunity between what my life looked like versus you know the the people that we were living around um And I happened to be at the University of Iowa where the doctor who developed this method, Dr. Ponsetti, um, was based. And so I learned about it, and and that was kind of the initial inspiration. We started the organization, as I said, nine years ago. And the way we work is to build up the capacity in countries that don't have the ability to treat clubfoot now. They're all low- and middle-income countries. But we work with the local doctors, the local physical therapists, the healthcare providers to Give them the knowledge and expertise that they need to treat the problem in their country. Um, We also work on making sure changing. Uh, raising awareness of Clubfoot and making sure that people understand that it's treatable. So we work on early referral Mm -hmm. um, and identification. um, And we also work on following up with a family to make sure that they complete the treatment so we don't get a kid who only starts and then never finishes. So we, we provide a really comprehensive program, but it's really based on building local capacity. So we're not putting a lot of American or European doctors on airplanes and flying them in to treat these kids. It's all happening locally, which means that hopefully... The solution is there for the long term and is a much more sustainable solution to a problem that obviously we can't ever prevent children being born with clubfoot, but we can make sure they get treated.
0: Yeah, well, those local solutions always work the best. Talk a little bit about the Ponsetti method. You've mentioned it once or twice, but uh, tell us exactly how that works.
1: So, yes, it's a non-surgical method that can be started as soon as the child is born. Um, ideally, uh, the kids start treatment in the first few weeks or months of birth. And the the doctor will manipulate the tendons and ligaments in the foot gently, um, really doesn't hurt the child, and then put a plaster of Paris cast on. They leave the cast on for one week, and the feet have moved 10 to 15 degrees. They repeat that process normally about three to five times, so over the course of three to five weeks. And then by the time they've done that, the feet are in a fully corrected position. Mm -hmm. Now, at that point, though, they do need to do one little um, surgical procedure. It's an outpatient procedure done with local anesthesia, so very low risk to the child. And they um, release the Achilles tendon, which allows the foot to to sit properly flat on the ground. Um, At that point, the foot is fully corrected. The child can learn to crawl, can learn to walk, can go to school, can can play sports, do everything that any um, able-bodied child would be able to do. Um, However, there's one little catch, which is just like when you've had your teeth moved around for orthodontic treatment,
5: Mm -hmm. um, you
1: have to wear a retainer. Club foot is similar. And for the first five years or while the child is under five years of age, the kids need to sleep in a brace at night. And that just stops the feet from relapsing. There's yeah. a tendency in some kids for their feet to push back in after, when they go through a, lo- a major growth spurt, which happens a lot between zero and five. So wearing that brace at night, which just positions the feet in a slightly outward-facing p- position, uh, seems to prevent the relapse from happening. And But that requires us to do follow-up for five years. So mm-hmm. they have to come in every few months, and it, and you know the time period gets longer as they get older. Um, their feet grow, so they need a new brace, a new pair of shoes, Um so, you know, there, there are a couple of reasons why we want to see them back in the clinic. But that does mean it, there's an added challenge in terms of follow-up with these kids. But the treatment itself, very effective, very simple. And because it's non-surgical, it's very inexpensive, yeah. well, which makes it particularly appealing, you know, in terms of solving a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And what countries are you currently operating in?
1: So, we work in 20, we, have prog- we support programs in 27 different countries around the world. They are where you would expect in terms of the, being in places where there are lower income countries, so in Central and South America, Africa, um, and Asia.
0: Mm-hmm. What role is technology playing uh, in the work that you do and trying to scale the, uh, the program up to other countries?
1: Yeah, great question. Where we're really um, leveraging technology, as I think, uh, you know, many nonprofits working in the field of, of global health are doing. Um, we developed our own brace. Um, while that was not uh, using technology in, in terms of sort of, you know, Computer or IT technology. Um, we use design thinking to work with Stanford University to come up with a brace that we can produce for twenty dollars, um, which has all the functionality of the braces that are used in the U.S. that cost three hundred and fifty to a thousand dollars. So that was one innovation, um, and and makes sure that we can provide braces that are very high quality and easy to use at a low cost, which we give away as part of our program to the families. Um, we've also used technology. Um, we have a mobile a phone-based app, to collect the patient record, so basically a, a medical record where we're able to collect the information about each child and make sure that our partners are delivering really high quality so we can track um, quality of treatment and outcomes for every child that we treat, but also obviously looking at that at a doctor level, a clinic level, a country level, so we know where to, to focus our resources and we know where to, which country might need help in a particular area. So if children happen to be dropping out during the bracing phase, we know that we need to invest more in parent education. And follow up during that latter part of the of the treatment. Um, if the doctors are not are using uh, you know, more costs than we would expect, which we can see easily by looking at the medical record, then we know that, that that we need to go back and do additional training in that particular clinic. So we use technology extensively in terms of monitoring the quality um, of treatment as we scale, and then obviously using that to um, focus where we put our resources, both time and financial.
5: Yeah. Well, let's talk um, about the th-
1: other area. Sorry, one last area where we'll we're using technology is um, that we are digitizing the, the, cur- the training curriculum, which we hope will make it easier to train more doctors at lower cost, which will obviously help solve this overall problem of having lack of access to treatment globally.
0: Uh, Jessica, let me ask you a little bit about that philanthropic support, and particularly how do you go about engaging people to support an organization uh, and a cause that I would presume the majority have no direct relationship with?
1: That's very true. So most people um, who support Miracle Feed, and, and we've been very lucky to have a lot of both well, very generous uh, donors, some of whom do have a connection to it, but as you say, most don't. Um, and I think what really appeals to people about this issue is that it's a very easily identifiable problem.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that can be easily fixed with a very, with a proven but inexpensive intervention at birth, right? So you can change the future trajectory of a child's tr- life very early on before any damage happens by making sure that they get access to this treatment. Um, if you're able to fix this child's feet, they're going to be able to go to school, they're going to be able to get a job, and they're going to literally be able to stand on their own two feet for the rest of their life in terms of not being dependent on other people because they can't walk properly um, and because of the stigma associated with, with disability in many of these countries. Um, so your return on investment, if you want to put it in those terms, is very high because you look at this. what it costs us fully loaded cost is about uh, $600 the actual cost to, in a country to treat one child is about $250 whichever way you look at it mm-hmm. um That person is going to produce, on average, $120,000 of additional earnings over the course of his or her life, let alone the fact that they're going to be able to join in, be literate, run around, participate fully, right, and reach their full potential, um, which would be very difficult, um, sadly, living with any kind of disability in many of these countries.
0: Yeah, that's a nice... So the
1: return on investment is, is something that people... Um, that I think attracts people to this cause, and then the fact it's so tangible, right? This is mm-hmm. a child, and, and by, by supporting Miracle Feet, you're going to make sure that he or she has the chance to join in. And I, I think we all uh, can, can relate to that on an emotional level, um, that you know, enabling a child to be able to run around, walk around, go collect water, play soccer, join in in playground games at school, um, is, a, is something that would warm everybody's hearts.
5: Yeah, well,
0: certainly your work goes well beyond fixing feet. You're really transforming these lies. Why don't we close, Jessica, by having you share one of your favorite patient stories?
1: Oh, gosh, there are so many. Um, One, I think, that is... is a tragic story but it has a very happy ending but it really speaks to why this issue matters um was a child that we were able to treat in tanzania um and the parents had the child born with clubfoot in in a rural village um and they went to find treatment um in a a couple of different locations but unfortunately the people that they sought treatment from didn't know how to do it. So after a very frustrating frustrating 6 months of somebody, you know, attempting to put casts on this child who didn't know what they were doing, there was no change in the child's feet and the father became so desperate because he knew that the future for this child was going to be really grim if he if he couldn't walk properly. He actually tried to murder his own child
5: mm-hmm. twice. Oh the
1: mother was able to protect the child. And fortunately, sought refuge in a hospital, and it happened to be the hospital that we had our program in. Um, and so, as soon as this kid was identified as having club foot, the host, you know we were able, the, the the local doctors there were able to treat the child, um, and they kept the child safe in the hospital for a while. But eventually, the the child and the mother were able to return to the village, um, and return to the family. Um, but. That, you know, it, 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 while well, it's a horrifying story, I think it really speaks to why this is such an important issue and why we can have such impact uh, by changing awareness of it and making sure that there's easy access to treatment wherever you might happen to be born.
0: Absolutely. Well, Cheska Colorado Mansfield, the executive director and co founder of Miracle Feed, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For listeners who are interested in learning more about your work or might be inclined to financially support it, tell us about your website and some of the information you have there.
1: Yes, you can visit www.miraclefeet.org. It's just as it sounds, miracle and feet joined together. Um, And there's a lot of information about the way we work, um, the countries that we work in, about the Ponsetti method, and, of course, um, you can click on the Donate button if you would like to support our work at any level, and every, every dollar helps and every gift is greatly appreciated um, by us and the families whose lives we're able to change.
0: Well, you're doing some incredible work. Thanks, Jessica. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Denver.
0: I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this.
4: A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to SmileTrain.org. Through Grameen America's groundbreaking microfinance model, tens of thousands of low-income women in New York are getting the financial capital they need to build small businesses and climb out of poverty. Join the movement. Visit GrameenAmerica.org to learn more. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from The Business of Giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.org. And now back to the show on AM 970
0: The Answer. When in the meat or dairy aisle at the grocery store, have you ever seen the label that reads Certified Humane, raised and handled? Have you wondered when and how this certification process got started? Well, tonight we'll find out directly from the person who started it. She is Adele Douglas, the founder and CEO of Humane Farm Animal Care. Good evening, Adele, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Share with us the mission and goals of Humane Farm Animal Care.
2: Well, the mission is uh, we're a nonprofit certification organization dedicated to improving the lives of farm animals in food production from birth through slaughter. The goal of the program is to improve the lives of farm animals by driving consumer demand for kinder and more responsible farm animal practices. When you see the certified humane raised and handle label on a product, you can be assured that the food products have come from facilities that meet precise, objective standards for farm animal treatment.
0: Now, you were raised in New York City,
5: Mm -hmm. Adele, and not
0: on the farm. So, what got you interested in this subject? And was there a moment when you decided that something had to be done?
2: Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I was uh, I worked for a member of Congress, and then I lobbied uh, Congress on behalf of children and animals, and uh, I was asked in the late '90s to be part of various animal welfare committees and they figured well she doesn't know anything about farm animals so we can do whatever we want well it didn't work out that way um, because I was when I went and saw how chickens were how hens were in cages and they couldn't move they couldn't stand up they couldn't sit down at the same time I was appalled Mm -hmm. I thought if consumers knew this they wouldn't buy this food so um, I and I asked friends who were scientists to show me the opposite, to show me different ways animals are raised. And that was very uh, inspirational. And I thought, well, um, I've got to do something to help farm animals, and this helps farmers, and it helps consumers. So therefore, who would object to this? So, um, and, you know, at, and I needed uh, money to start it, so I cashed in my 401k, mm-hmm. so I had money, and then I got funding, I got some funding from uh, HSUS, from ASPCA, um, and um, and that was for, uh, you know, four or five years, and, um, and we've been on our own ever since.
0: Yeah. In addition to some of those horrific conditions you just spoke about, what should consumers be aware of as it relates to hormones and antibiotics in the meat that they eat?
2: Well, we don't allow hormones under any circumstances because all the hormones do for the animals is make them grow faster. But but the people who eat the meat with the hormones in them Um, develop sensitivities because cattle are given estrogen, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And antibiotics. We don't allow antibiotics except on a rare occasion if there's a sick animal and a veterinarian recommends it. They keep lots of records for that animal. They wait until the animal um, has, um, you know, outgrown the the antibiotics. So we allow that, but we don't... A lot of farmers do... um, uh, antibiotics in order to prevent any potential diseases, and we don't allow that.
0: Mm-hmm. Why did you decide on a certification process and not an act of legislation uh, as a way to address this problem?
2: Well, I used to work for a member of Congress from New York, actually, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Green, right. and um and, it, and I remember studying, it took 100 years to get the Humane Slaughter Act passed, which had been passed in Europe years and years and years mm-hmm. before. So I thought, I would like to be alive when this happens. <laughs> so that was the reason for that.
0: <laughs> Makes an awful lot of sense. Well, to have your product labeled as certified humane, you have to meet a certain specific set of standards. How did you come up and develop these standards?
2: Well, we, uh, I had some friends who were uh, animal scientists, and because I had worked with them on other issues, And I asked them how they would feel if we did this, and could they help? And they said yes. And so we now have a 40-member International Animal Science Committee. Wow. And the standards are written based on scientific data. And if there's a question, if there's no research, we will go with what is the most ethical. Mm -hmm. And that's what the standards are like. And we change them every few years. You know, we, we... Um, upgrade them you know so uh, but really they're very effective the standards and again it's birth through slaughter so in some instances where you have pigs you know they're born in one area they're raised in another they go to slaughter and so everything has to be inspected and there's different inspectors for different things Um, for example one of the things we learned early on is that the animals... Uh, uh, well, let me just go back for a second. Our uh, inspectors have to have a master's or a PhD in animal science, very specific animals, or veterinarians that are ver- have very specific background. So, um, when they would love to you know, go to the farms and see the animals, but they weren't interested in slaughter, most of them weren't interested in slaughter, mm-hmm. and most of them were not interested in uh, you know, f- f- counting, actually, because we have to do a um, um, a check on, you know, making sure that the animals that have the label uh, have gone through the whole thing. So, there's it's a lot of numbers, and they weren't interested in that. So, we have three different types of inspectors. We have um, the farm animal inspectors okay. on the farm. We have the slaughter inspectors. And we have those who do the... Um, you know, the tally to make sure that the, uh, um, the lo- logo goes on the right animals. Okay, so from the time it's slaughtered and then the time it goes to the stores and stuff, it's uh, you have to be a brilliant mathematician. So,
0: <laughs> A pretty thorough process. How often are these inspections carried out? Every year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Every year. Everyone on the program has to reapply. Uh, just like it's new, yeah, and um, and the and the whole thing is done.
0: Do most of the farmers reapply?
2: Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. We had some farmers who were original from the 2003, the year we started this. Um, Pete and Jerry's eggs, um, Dubreton natural pork, um, Prather Ranch beef, um, and Ayrshire Farm out in Virginia. Those four are still with us.
0: Very cool. How do you go around engaging these farmers, Educate them, you know, telling them what it means to be certified humane, and then getting them to sign up for the program?
2: Well, mostly, once we started, um, the farmers would contact us and ask us questions because they were in a tough position. They were interested because they you know, were willing to make whatever changes necessary, but they were concerned about how their peers would react to them being on the program. So that was tough at the beginning. Hmm. But our, um, What was
0: their concern about their peers?
2: Well, uh, we had a beef guy who was so worried that if he came on the program, his peers would attack him. And attack his product because they, you know, most of the cattle people weren't interested. So um, that's all changed. But at the beginning, that was a tough one. Plus, our inspectors, one of the things I learned uh, from the beginning was that Oh, uh, there's a lot of research on animals. A lot of research at agricultural schools, but that never gets to the farmer. Yeah, and, and if you send him the, you know, the the scientific paper, they fall asleep reading it because <laughs> right. believe me, I used to fall asleep reading it. So our inspectors, you know, again, they're all animal scientists have PhDs or mm-hmm. masters. If they go on a farm and they see something, they'll say to the farmer, by the way, there are uh, other farmers who do something similar than what you're doing or do something different, and it's effective, and this is why, and this is the research. So part of the inspection is education, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. You have said that this certification process provides a triple win. What would those three victories be?
2: That would be A for the animals, yeah. B for the consumers, and uh, for, for the farmers, mm-hmm. and C for the consumers. Mm-hmm. And again, I thought that that who would oppose? I mean, what a great thing that was! Well, everybody opposed it. So I mean, you know, the commodity groups, and also there were a lot of animal rights groups that their objective was to ha- not eat any meat or anything like that. And so, why would they not attack us? Because we're saying You know, that uh, here are the rules. But we found that only 96% of Americans are uh, vegetarians. And I don't know what percent of that are vegans. And so while they're doing their thing, we want to make sure the animals are treated humanely, you know, that they're able to do the things that are natural for them.
0: Yeah. What's that level of opposition today? Is it subsided or is it still very much present?
2: Um, well, there's there are a couple of super animal rights groups that constantly attack us. But on our blog, on our website, I, I've done, you know, responses, you mm-hmm. know, very factual responses. So, um you know, it's, uh, but, and the commodity groups don't bother us. I mean, they, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how does being certified humane uh, impact the price uh, for the consumer at the grocery
5: store?
2: Well, when we did a study about this about five years ago, it was between the commodity and organic. It was in the middle. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't as high as organic and it wasn't as, um, as low as commodity. Uh, Products.
0: Yeah, you mentioned a moment ago that you started this back in 2003. Uh, How big has this movement grown in terms of farms involved, uh, stores and restaurants, countries you're in, and so on?
2: So, um, we started uh, in the end of 2003. We had 143,000 animals on the program, and last year, the end of 2018, we had uh, over 196 million. Farm animals
0: that's some kind of growth
2: and that's that's just for the year that's mm-hmm. not a total the total is like a billion but and we have farms we uh, we've grown and we have um, an office in florianopolis brazil and we have um, farms in argentina australia brazil canada chile colombia um, Mexico, Jordan, New Zealand, Peru, the United States, and Uruguay, mm-hmm. and we're selling certified humane products in uh, uh, the Bahamas, Malaysia, and Singapore. So
0: it's so grown. We've grown. We've,
2: yeah. re- we've really grown.
0: Where would a listener find a certified humane product? Will it be at their local grocery store, or do they have to go to specialty stores? Essentially, where are they carried?
2: Well, uh, consumers used to ask that question when we first started, so we set up. If you go to our website and you look for where can I buy, we have a list of supermarkets. You type in your state, your city, whatever, and Mm -hmm. it will list the supermarkets and what products are in the supermarkets that are certified humane so that you're not walking around looking for the label Mm -hmm. all the time. So...
0: Yeah, very user friendly. I must say,
2: it is very user friendly.
0: Uh, Adele, how do you finance this operation? Is it a mix of earned income, philanthropy? Tell us a little bit about uh, that it's business model. Do-
2: it's donations. We do get we do get a a small amount in uh, fees. Okay, and th- we charge. For the inspection, but we charge—I think—seven hundred dollars a day, per, not per farm, but for the day. So, if you have three farms in the same area and they're small, they'll they'll split the seven hundred dollars. If it's a small farm, we don't charge anything, okay? Because they can't—you know—the mm-hmm. producer can't afford it. Um, so, and we have fees. The fees aren't that high, and we and contributions, mostly contributions, and how we. Um, you know broadcast how we uh, spread the information.
0: Uh, you had mentioned uh, a moment ago to Dell that you started this back in 2003. I mean, you cashed in your 401k. I did. I did. I, so did. I, think, I think you it, called it a moment of insanity.
2: <laughs> it was actually a moment of insanity, but and I have to say uh, for anybody who's interested in doing something like this, I was working I worked from my apartment and I worked Uh, Seven days a week, at least 18 hours a day, getting it started. And so, um, you know, you, I, and I would, every once in a while, I would stop and I would actually think about what my goal was, and then I would panic, and so I'd go back to work. So, uh, you know, working distracted me from uh, all of the things I would be afraid of. Um, And I made up my mind that if we didn't raise any funds and we couldn't do it, I would, you know, get a job. I Mm -hmm. would just get a job. So I was 57 at the time. Wow. So,
0: yeah. And you were going to give it your all, though. You were not going to leave anything in the bag. You were going to give it everything you had. So you really knew.
2: And that's and and that's true. The other thing is what I didn't know. I had friends. I would call and say, do you know about this? And they would say, no, but let me call so-and-so and and have them call you. The most important thing in any business is knowing what you don't know and asking people who really do know, you know, what the answers are so you can move forward.
0: That's a great point, because there's so many people, I think, who are afraid to ask. And uh, when they do, they find out how willing people are to want to help them and share their information.
2: And and I found that, that they were very, very willing. And again, the the thing is not to, I don't know how to say this, it's not to, you know, prove that you're so smart that they can't help you. The more that you need to know, the more you ask, and the more information that you get, and then you can... Rethink. You can redesign. You, you you can move forward with whatever it is that you're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me close with this, Adele. I, where do you think the industry might be going? Um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, plant based meats. So, on one hand, is there going to be a day, perhaps, when there is no farm animals on our our uh, our table? And what else do you think the future might hold as far as uh, your work is concerned?
2: Well, w- the one thing I will say is that a lot of the farms and farmers have changed. They've changed how they do things to meet the standards. They really have done uh, a big thing. In terms of the artificial meat, you know, I don't know. If people want to eat that rather than meat, then that's fine. They mm-hmm. can do that. They can buy that. Um you know, so I'm not sure where that's going to go. And if people don't want to eat animals at some point, um, that's fine. I mean, we're not here to, you know, force animals to be part of the dinner. You know, yeah. it's not yeah. it's not our goal.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Adele Douglas, the Chief Executive Officer of the Humane Farm Animal Care, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For people who are interested in learning more about certified humane Tell us about your website and uh, some of the information you have on it.
2: Okay. Our website is certifiedhumane.org, one word, certifiedhumane.org. And it, we try to be very transparent. So everything you want to know is on that website. The standards, the applications, uh, the um, the staff, the board of directors, the uh Past There's news releases that we put out from 2003, and they're all on there. So we try to be very, very transparent. So anything you need to know is there. If you can't find something, call us.
0: Well, there you go. That's, so That's pretty transparent right there. Well, thanks, Adele. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that.
0: I'll all be right. back with more of The Business of Giving right
4: after this. Youth opportunities, strong communities, a healthy planet. Sounds like the work of social entrepreneurs. Yes, but it's also the work of artists. Upstart Collab is a new national collaboration connecting artists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs. Upstart's mission is to create opportunities for artist innovators to deliver social impact at scale. Upstart is committed to promoting artists as innovators, unleashing capital for creativity, and enabling sustainable creative lives. Find out more at wwwupstartco lab If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970 The Answer.
0: Well, before the Environmental Protection Agency ever existed, there was Keep America Beautiful, founded in 1953. And it may be hard to imagine today, but there was a time when drivers would throw trash out their car window without thinking about it twice. But it was Keep America Beautiful that did get us to think about it and change the behavior of an entire nation. And they continue to do that to this very day. And here to discuss it all with us is Helen Lohman, the president and CEO of Keep America Beautiful. Good evening, Helen, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
3: Hi, Denver. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: You know, the history of your organization is so rich, and there are two piece of it, pieces of it that I wanted to share uh, for our younger listeners. The first would be the iconic Ad Council spot that first ran on Earth Day in 1971. Describe that spot and the impact that it had on American society.
3: Yeah, that spot. Um, you know, we had a partnership with Ad Council for years, and um, that spot... Is known, well known as the Crying Indian. That's Spot. That's the name of the PSA, um, and it it shows um, a Native American who's uh, witnessing litter essentially all over um, the country. And at the very end of the spot, it shows him standing on a hill, and um, somebody in a car throws a bag of litter or trash out the window, Mm -hmm. and it lands at his feet, and a single tear rolls down his face. And that... Today, that ad is one of the most famous public service advertisements ever in the United States. Um, at universities, students study it in marketing departments. but it really changed um, the course of people in the United States to understand that litter was wrong yeah. and that you know, there was a proper place for trash to go. Um, so it, it it really, you know, when you talk to people about it, uh, if they were kids during that time, it really had an enormous impact on them and how they how they behaved.
0: It did on me. And I think, you know, part of it, probably back at that time, was that the interstate highway system had been built. And there was this time when you were just driving into your car with the windows open and you finished your McDonald's or whatever, and you would just take it and chuck it out the window. It was incredible, wasn't it?
3: It was incredible. And, um, you know, we hope that people people continue to understand that lesson um, but unfortunately litter is is still a problem today and we still work really hard to fight it but yeah at that time you know consumerism had really hit mm-hmm. America and um, there wasn't an infrastructure for, for for anyone to there weren't trash cans around there you know just this consumerism uh, there wasn't an infrastructure to handle it
0: yeah. Another thing from your history would be the relationship that Keep America Beautiful had with former First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, What was her area of focus?
3: Well, it was really about beautification. Um, She worked with us to uh, beautify highways, um, primarily highways. Uh, She worked on a billboard bill. She was very anti-billboards, right. and especially on highways. She mm-hmm. believed that—, that uh, turned out
0: to be some kind of a compromise, though, yeah, I think, I at th- the end of the day, exactly if I recall. That's <laughs> exactly right.
3: That's exactly right. Uh, and so, yeah, we were her kind of chosen charity, and uh, we worked with her um, on wildflowers and on on highway beautification.
0: Yeah, And th- two, those two things are still very much to the core of what you do. So Helen, share with us the mission and the goals of the organization as they currently stand.
3: Right. so the the mission is really to empower individuals to uh, beautify and um, clean and sustain their uh, their communities. So it's really a very grassroots mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's about education uh, around three specific goals. And uh, one is to end littering, Mm -hmm. the second is to improve recycling, and the third is to beautify communities. And we do that with about 600, more than 600 actually, affiliate organizations across the country. Um, At at the headquarters level, at our level, we really try to provide resources, um, you know, tools, anything the affiliates need in order to implement the programming at the grassroots level.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's take the first of those, and that is littering. Um, One of your big programs there would be the Great American Cleanup.
3: Yep, that's right. The Great American Cleanup is amazing. Uh, There are about 20,000 events across the United States that involve anything from – Cleaning illegal graffiti, mm-hmm. to planting flowers, to picking up litter—anything um, that involves improving the local community—and through that, changing the behavior around um, around litter and and uh, helping individuals understand how they can how they can maintain a beautiful community.
0: Yeah, and even though there's been a significant reduction in smoking. You still see those cigarette butts out on the street. What are you doing about that? And are you partnering with anybody to try to clean that element up?
3: Yeah, unfortunately, um, cigarette butts are the number one type of litter. Um, They make up about 34% of litter. uh, Much more
0: than I would have thought.
3: Yeah, it's a lot, unfortunately. Um, And so we partner with Altria. Uh, who is a cigarette ma- manufacturer mm-hmm. and um, to run a program called the Cigarette Litter Prevention Program? It's uh, an, a massive initiative across the United States to put um, w- the little um, cigarette butt containers. Across the United States, those are then collected, um, sent to a company called TerraCycle, Mm -hmm. and they're actually recycled and made into other products. The thing about cigarette butts that most people um, don't actually realize is that the filter is plastic, and so it doesn't degrade. And most people don't realize that they think that oh, it's a natural, it's paper, it'll you know, it's tobacco, it'll degrade. But that that little Filter is plastic, and that's the real damage. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Keep America Beautiful is always looking for practical solutions to solve problems. But with that being said, do you ever get any pushback in partnering with a cigarette company?
3: Um, I would say there probably are people who don't think it's a good idea, Mm -hmm. but um, it's a very, very beneficial project for us. And it's there is a need across this country. And I would say, you know, the manufacturer realizes and is taking responsibility for their part.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's pick up on uh, Lady Bird again. And that has to do with your public beautification program. What are some of your initiatives in that arena?
3: Lots of initiatives around um, public spaces, the greening of public spaces, parks. Uh, We have affiliates across the country who, um, you know, take care of parks plant gardens plant trees we have affiliates that plant thousands of trees across the country and and um so just you know also wildflowers on the highways i I, mississippi just comes to mind they have an incredible program um that uh provides wildflowers Mm-hmm. Across uh, on the highways, um, Texas, of course, because of Lady Bird Johnson, their their wildflower program is amazing. I would hope so. Um, and and all sorts of parks and trees planted at schools and that kind of thing. It's a it's a big part of what we do still.
0: Yeah, and one of the focuses of that would be National Planting Day. Uh, Tell us about that. When is that usually held?
3: National Planting Day is in the fall. Mm -hmm. And it's a day when we uh, like to have, it's just a day to recognize that that we should all plant something, Um, you know, to get out plant your flowers, plant your fall garden. Um, We also have a lot of uh, affiliates that work in community gardens. Um, They might, for example, in Phoenix, our affiliate has a community garden that they've developed in a vacant lot. And one of the most amazing things we see in places like that is where um, communities and neighborhoods uh, where the litter is picked up and where there's trees and flowers and gardens, you you can see the property values go up. So there's a a kind of a subsequent uh, improvement that happens. The crime is reduced, property Mm -hmm. values go up. um, Because people are out walking, health goes up. So there's a lot of other improvements that are seen as well.
0: Yeah, very cool. And then there is recycling, which Keep America Beautiful was one of the pioneers in. Now I'm glad you're here because I hear so many conflicting messages about recycling, whether it's good, or whether it's a waste of time, what you should be done. Why don't you set us straight about recycling? What should consumers know?
3: Well, I'm not sure I'm going to set you straight, but... um, (laughs) Somebody has to. (laughs) um, Everyone should keep recycling. Recycling is a really important um, part of the circular economy. It's something that we need people to participate in. The real challenge right now in recycling is the issue of contamination. Mm -hmm. So... um, many people want to recycle um, it's a lot of times we refer to it as aspirational recycling or wish cycling yeah. where a folk you know folks go to their recycling bin and they you know for example they think oh well maybe maybe possibly these dirty diapers could be recycled <laughs> so I'm gonna yeah. put them in my recycling bin and unfortunately what happens is that then contaminates the entire, bin of recycling. Mm -hmm. So what's really important is that um, you know for your community what can go in the recycling bin because it is different community to community and that that's the only thing that goes in that recycling bin. So there's a saying in in the recycling world that is, when in doubt – throw it out. So put it in the garbage (laughs) if you have any question about it. But definitely keep recycling. The markets um, are good. We just need to to do our part.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges the markets have at the moment, though, is that China is no longer taking our recycled waste, and that's caused some some backup and some headaches for, for people who've been in that business.
3: It has definitely um, the the challenges uh, with China uh, no longer taking mm-hmm. um, buying our recycled goods is uh, has been a challenge, um, but there are definitely industries here who want clean, good recycled um, items to put back in their own. Almost all the beverage companies have goals to make sure that their their beverages in the future are actually in recycled content bottles. So they need those to close the circular loop.
0: Yeah, and I read the other day that uh, when you get a, buy a can of uh, soda at the store and recycle it, it can actually be back on the store shelves within 60 days. And I was blown away yep. by that.
3: Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and honestly, they want... You know, we hear often from from many companies, Pepsi, Coke, Nestle Waters, you know, we need more bottles and cans back. We need them back. We need them back. So yeah. keep recycling them. <laughs>
0: yeah. And one of your programs there is I Want to Be Recycled.
3: Yep. Mm-hmm. So I want to be recycled in our research we found that people were more likely to recycle if they knew that what they were were recycling was going to become something else. And so we have a campaign called I want to be recycled. Mm-hmm. Um it's a there's a, several ads but it shows items that have been recycled becoming something else. Um there's one that shows a a bottle, a plastic bottle, that goes on this uh, journey. It's called the journey. And um, at the end of the the journey of the bottle, it becomes a bench that overlooks the ocean. <laughs> so it's quite cute.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we mentioned uh, one of your partnerships you have around cigarette butts, but you have a number of other corporate partners. Uh, well, let's talk about a couple of them, starting with Pernod Ricard.
3: Yeah, Pernod Ricard is a new and fantastic partner of ours. Um, they are doing some really incredible things, and uh, I wanna I wanna just mention one since we're sitting in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a day when they actually close all their operations, and. On that day, every single one of their employees gives back to the community. It's called Responsible Day. And um, we partner with them to have uh, their employees here in New York City uh, do give back. We've done partnerships with them mostly through um, community gardens. Mm-hmm. So, Grow New York City and other local um, nonprofits here in New York that have community gardens. We help them by bringing in uh, Pernod Ricard employees, and they paint. They do all sorts of things. They build benches. They, you know, clean up. It's uh, it's it's really really impressive, and we have a lot of fun with it.
0: Yeah. There's also the um, Hefty Energy Bag program. What's that about? The
3: Hefty Energy Bag is a program that is um, in a few cities. Um, Basically, it's a way of recycling very hard-to-recycle items. So there's a special bag, and if the community has a way to process uh, this particular method of recycling, things like— potato chip bags Mm -hmm. and that type of packaging that are normally absolutely unable to be recycled uh, can be recycled through the Hefty Energy Bag Program.
0: Helen, have you uh, ever been able to measure the impact of your work on these 600 plus communities in terms of the the, the economic uh, payback of it all?
3: Yeah, so we do actually measure it uh, every single year, um, the return to the communities where we work. And uh, last year, uh, if I remember correctly, it was about $350 million Mm -hmm. that um, our affiliate network gave back to their communities.
0: So what are you doing in schools? Tell me about your educational program. Uh,
3: We have great, great... uh, success in schools um we have two main programs uh one is um called waste in place mm-hmm. and it is a curriculum that we train teachers on um and then they use it in their schools or um also it's really uh, good for girls and boy scouts for boys and girls clubs yeah it can be used uh, in many different ways. There's a lot of really fun activities for kids
5: mm-hmm.
3: to do. And then uh, we also have a youth advisory committee, and that's 11th and 12th graders. And we work with those students to actually do uh environmental projects on their school campuses so they can you know do a recycling program they could you know have some sort of litter education and we work with those 11th and 12th graders to implement those projects at their on their school campuses
0: fantastic you know, I try to learn a new word every week, and this week that word would be plogging.
3: Plogging. <laughs> <laughs> what is
0: plogging?
3: <laughs> so, plogging is really new for us, but it's very exciting. Um, it actually comes originally from Sweden, mm-hmm. and the the word in Swedish is plogga up. And what we've sort of transliterated it here in the United States to plogging, which means picking up litter while jogging. So it's a it's an incredible movement actually um, for runners to take a bag with them when they go running and then they pick up litter while they're running. And we're actually holding several um, events. We we do events in communities around plogging where we, you know, give out prizes yeah. and have contests, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, we have one coming up that's in Norwalk, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. We're partnering with the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk. Um, and we have another one coming up in Houston. Um, we're also doing one in Essex County. Uh, so... Lots of fun stuff there. Uh, We were really fortunate that um, Oprah Magazine actually covered us a few months ago in their April edition on doing plogging with Keep America Beautiful.
0: Very neat. Well, I know that runners are a very responsible group of people, and as long as they're not timing themselves on these runs... They'll do a lot of good yeah, work. Yeah, well, there's <laughs> a lot of
3: different kind of things we're giving prizes about, like who gathers the most litter. And it's not about crossing the finish line the first yeah. person.
0: Give us a little bit about your business model and how you're uh, funded and how you make all of this go.
3: So our business model is um, m- we're we're mostly funded through corporate partners, mm-hmm. uh, our partnerships with um, you know all different types of um, of corporations. We have a few grants, a few individual donors, um, and you know we have our organization, Keep America Beautiful, that's located just outside of New York City mm-hmm. in Stamford, Connecticut, and then the six hundred and um, 600 plus, let's say, uh, affiliates that are across the United States, and each of those affiliates has has a huge volunteer network mm. that does their work for them. So we have probably about three million volunteers across the country, and then in addition to that, about you know in a, another two million or so people who just participate in uh-huh. things that we do.
0: Let me close with this, Helen. Keep America Beautiful was probably the first organization that emphasized a clean environment was just not the responsibility of government and industry, but of each individual citizen. If there is a place that you think we are collectively falling short, what would that be? And what would you ask that each of us do starting tomorrow?
3: Well, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think I I would ask at this point in time for people to to really think about not littering. Mm-hmm. Uh, littering is still an enormous problem in our country. And you would I mean it's just it's unbelievable to me actually that someone would think about intentionally throwing something on the ground. And I would just really beg people to just wait, find a trash can, put it in the right place or Take the next step and put it in a recycling bin if it's recyclable. Um, that is really my ask. Uh, I think I think we operate uh, with a tri-sector partnership with communities, government, and industry. We believe that working together, mm-hmm. uh, the you know all those sectors together, is the way that that we can create change. But at the end of the day, if somebody has something in their hand and they don't dispose of it in the right place, we're never going to win this fight.
0: Right. It comes down to each and every one of us. Well, Helen Lohman, the president and CEO of Keep America Beautiful, I want to thank you for being here this evening. For people who want to learn more about the organization or perhaps financially support your work, tell us about your website and the kind of information they
3: can expect to find there. Right. It's very easy. It's K-A-B. Mm-hmm. org. Uh, And they can find all sorts of information, research, tools, um, everything's on our website. And I would encourage everyone to go there to learn more.
0: Well, thanks, Helen. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
3: Thank you, Denver. Hope to see you again soon.
0: And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful week. And do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving.
4: The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.